0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The land back movement in Canada is similar to land back movements and initiatives in the U.S. It's grounded in land stewardship, cultural strengthening, and bringing balance back to the community. Indigenous people in Canada experienced a different history of colonization and have embarked on an era of truth and reconciliation. We're exploring land back movements and initiatives from First Nations, Métis, and Inuit perspectives. That's coming up after the news. Stay with us.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A bill to ensure Native Americans are included in the renaming of the University of California Hastings College of Law is advancing in the California legislature. It passed the Senate Education Committee last week. The college is named for a land speculator who built his fortune committing atrocities against Northern California tribes. The bill introduced by Native American Assembly member James Ramos strikes the name Hastings from the school and creates a process for renaming. Ramos says having Native people rename the college is restorative justice for the Round Valley Indian tribes whose ancestors were killed by Serenus Hastings. The California legislature named the school in state statute in the 1800s, and legislative action is required. Required to rename the campus. In 2021, the college board approved changing the school's name and has been in discussion with tribes. The bill passed the Education Committee with a 6-0 bipartisan vote and now heads to the Senate Appropriations Committee. Members of the Native community in Lawrence, Kansas, gathered last week to amplify their voices on the topic of abortion. The panel, titled Indigenous Voices and Abortion Justice, explored the historical context of abortion bans and the possible impacts to the Native community with the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Democratic member of the Kansas House of Representatives, Christina Haswood, was among panelists expressing frustration. She says Native women already lack access to abortion health care, to a provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion.
2: With the Hyde Amendment 2, we've always never had uh, abortion care as accessible as maybe some other folks. It's really concerning for the native population because we really depend on Indian health services and um, especially when we're getting out of Kansas into rural areas as well, um, hour two hours for health care services. And we have the highest rates of mortality and morbidity for maternal um, and pregnancy related
1: complications. Haswood says adding to the recent High Court ruling is an upcoming vote on abortion policy in Kansas. During the August primary, voters will decide whether to amend the state constitution to remove the right to abortion. Haswood says she's frustrated as a politician and a Native woman, seeing indigenous voices not really being heard at the state and national level
2: you know, just thinking about my own health, and if, if it were to come to that, um, would I die giving birth? It's kind of a scary thought that I just realized now. Just how valuable the choice was, and how the choice for me growing up and being in the position I was has always been so empowering. I don't think I would have gone this far in my career, an academic career, um, with the comfort of knowing that I always had a choice.
1: Haswood says she's working with her team to organize the summer ahead of the August 2nd primary. Meanwhile, last week's panel discussion included members of the Indigenous Community Center, which plans to host a second event to further the discussion on abortion from Indigenous perspectives. The U.S. Department of Justice has opened the application period for federally recognized tribes to take part in the Tribal Access Program for National Crime Information. It allows tribes to access and exchange data with national crime information databases. Justice Department officials say it's a tool for tribal police, governments, and courts to investigate crimes, keep communities safe, and hold offenders accountable. The program provides training, software, workstations to process fingerprints, take mugshots, and submit information to the FBI. There are currently more than 100 tribes participating in the program. This round of applications open July 1st and closes at the end of August. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation,
3: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Have an idea to improve your tribal economy? Information at BIA.gov DCI, which supports this show.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A consortium of tribes in Montana is suing the Canadian federal government for failing to deliver on an agreement signed 25 years ago. The agreement was an acknowledgement of the government's unfulfilled treaty promises. In this case, for nearly a million acres of land. The lawsuit by the tribes say the government has delivered less than half of what is spelled out in the agreement. It's the latest in an ongoing effort to return indigenous land to indigenous people. As Canadians acknowledged Canada Day on Friday, many of the country's indigenous people wore orange in a show of support for reconciliation that includes the transfer of unceded native land. Many of the issues around traditional indigenous land in Canada parallel those in the U.S. and involve land taken through force, coercion, and treaties negotiated in bad faith. But First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people face unique challenges as well. We'll hear about that coming up this hour. Get involved in the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. We have three guests on the show today, all of them uniquely qualified to talk about Canada's growing land back movement. Let's talk first with Dr. Linda Manyguns. She's the Associate Vice President of Indigenation and Decolonization at Mount Royal University. She's Blackfoot. And joining us from Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Dr. Manyguns, welcome back to the show.
5: Oh, thank you for having me again.
0: Absolutely. Land Back really gaining traction in both Canada and the US. Can you tell us more about what the Land Back movement is seeking to accomplish?
5: Well, it's multidimensional. Uh, I know that you mentioned just previously in in the introduction, it's about giving land back. And there are initiatives, I was just involved in one where we were actually transferring 270 acres uh, to the St. Mary's Band in New Brunswick, uh, just outside of Fredericton. And that initiative was done by Marion Cumming, and that was property that she felt was unseated and taken by the government illegally. And uh, it took us, gee, almost 30 years to actually finally get this um, transfer done. But it was just done over the last few months. The papers were signed and the little band now has full control and they'll transfer that title into um, Indigenous title so that it's taxed exempt the land back yeah the land back initiative has got uh, other dimensions and that's about self-determination and stewardship and like i'm blackfoot and one of our you know very sacred bundles which i'm part of has all of the animals and all of the birds and and whatnot in it and every spring and fall we we um, uh, we sing their songs and we redo our commitment to all of those birds and animals and plants and the land that we live on. Uh, so that is our commitment to stewardship that we renew twice a year. And that's renewing it with a promise that we'll take care of them as long as they take care of us and Every Aboriginal community, I am sure, has similar or equivalent commitments to the entities that they uh, live with in their territories.
0: Dr. Many Guns, these concepts that you use to describe Land Back, self-determination, stewardship, sovereignty, resources, these aren't new grievances or issues in Native America. What's different about the way Land Back is addressing these concerns?
5: It's raising um, awareness uh, to a new level. Um, and I think it's great gaining traction because the world is in crisis. Uh, our environment is not in good shape. And I think the continuing, continuing down the path of colonialism and extraction of you know resources out of the land and plants and animals is no longer a viable way to exist. And there is no other uh, view or a holistic way of living with the world that exists except for the Indigenous perspective. And uh, for the first time, our thinking processes, our ways of, of of coexisting, mutually coexisting with mutual respect and, and with honoring you know, all the, the, the life forms that uh, and the ecosystems that we have suddenly make sense to more people. And, you know, due to the crisis, people are turning and asking more questions and want to know more.
0: A world in crisis. And Dr. Miniguns, in some contexts, the land back movement includes a social justice component. Can you talk about that?
5: Oh, yes. Yeah. Social justice is probably the the core of the whole interest in this initiative. And, you know, social justice, I mean, uh, stolen lands have occurred everywhere around the world for Indigenous people. Here in Canada, I I would say that almost half the land is still unceded. And it, it begs the question of the ethicalness and the, the claim of legality. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. social justice. I mean, people, our people were starved to death in many parts of Canada in order to take the lands. Um, the starvation policies that were put in place, we now know that the amount of food that was given to the people uh, was half the rations that were provided to prisoners in the worst prisons in the world. So starvation was definitely the objective of getting rid of the Indian question up here in Canada and the very fact that we've survived and now we're still arguing not to join their world but rather to renew ours and regain the ethical concepts of a holistic way of living in the world is is mind-boggling it's it's just the same as you know elders and people from our communities have been through these residential schools and brutalized and yet when they come out they talk about the philosophy of kindness it's just astounding at the strength and the values of the indigenous people and and how we're so committed to continuing down that road
0: I've read that Indigenous people in Canada contain, or in in Canada they only have about 0.2 percent of their original lands pre-European colonial contact. Does land back have a goal for how much land in Canada it seeks to recover?
5: Well, it's uh, it's not about expanding reserves so much as it is is uh, reclaiming the stewardship for all of our environment like my son works up in the Nunavut up in the north pole area and the aboriginal people have control over a good part of the stewardship with animals and plants there and when those caribou herds are moving and they're moving right now every single engine in the entire territory has to be shut off and they have to wait until the herds move by and there's usually about 10,000 animals in a herd. So there are places where we're actually starting to uh, make sure that the ecosystems and the environments can start to practice and live again, and and that's what we're focusing on. Not so much ownership of land, but to ensure that these the animal ecosystems, the plant ecosystems, that we start to uh, express our ownership and concern about ensuring that the environment can exist around us and to bring on board as many of the non-Aboriginal people and entities that will support these initiatives so that we can push back on the extraction and and, uh, uh, deliberate destruction of the world around
0: us. Reclaiming stewardship then as opposed to ownership Mm -hmm. and much of the land in Canada as I understand it is held by the crown both on the federal and provincial level. Are these the kinds of lands that the movement is interested in or is it also looking to reclaim stewardship uh, on private lands too?
5: Well, what's interesting about that question is and it probably happened in the States as well, and, and that is if you take a look at the history of how the Western movement kind of came across North America, what you'll find is that um, it's ironic actually, is that the government would take some of the most um, the holiest places or the places that were so sacred to us, and they would turn them all into parks and open them up to the public. And those park zones, those are also crown lands, contain some of the most important environmental and ecological um, um, environmental systems that were very close to us. Whether it's animals or plants or waterways or for the fishes and the birds and stuff like that, so it's about almost stepping back in time and looking at what those ecosystems uh, were prior to contact, and looking at reviving those and 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 ensuring that all those plants and animals can can continue to exist in the healthy. Life forms that they previously had.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Linda Manny Guns at Mount Royal University in Calgary, in Alberta, Canada, a world in crisis. And she's explaining more about Canada's growing land back movement. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you've got something to say, we're waiting for you. 1 800 996 2848. Phone lines are open. We'll be back right after this break. We're taking a look at art, music, film, and pop culture of the 1960s from a Native perspective. Join us as we revisit everything from Vietnam to the American Indian Movement. It's the start of our special Decade series on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about land back in Canada today. You can join our conversation. What land back initiatives are happening in your native community? How would you define land back? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Dr. Linda Manyguns. And Dr. Manyguns, you were talking about how the the government, the federal government, both in Canada and down here in the US, had had a history and a practice of taking what were some of our holiest spaces among our native people and opening them up for parks and and right off the bat it it made me think of places like Mount Rushmore in South Dakota and then down here in the southwest at Mesa Verde and let's talk more about that and I'd really like to know more about some of the biggest challenges that you think are, are facing the land back movement in Canada right now what are they challenges?
5: Well, the biggest challenges we have, you know, are where we try to create some resistance in order to uh, uh, stop the resource development or extraction. Uh, some of the the issues, like Fairy Creek, uh, which has uh, our Aboriginal people are have been manning the the barricades there at uh, a heavy, heavy toll of our Aboriginal people due to arrests and, and the violence that uh, has occurred around that. This is to save um, ancient, ancient trees that are in that territory. There's really no reason for these, these, these entities to be chopped down and, and cleared, um, except for greed. And we, this is a territory that's very sacred to us, uh, as are the entities, and to ensure that we're protecting. This is about politics, for sure. This is about economic uh, issues where we're um, locking horns with what those concepts are. And as well, we're also hoping that we can move this this uh, momentum of this the the philosophy of land back into the historically owned lands that aboriginal people um, protected and in which we were given the responsibility of continuing to protect as our cultures start to regain and recover from this residential uh, school period the crisis of it and as we heal we also re-embrace the responsibilities that we had to the land and to the, to the trees and plants and whatnot. And my sense is that that will increase over time until we find a mutual uh, common ground. Um, in, and I can't even imagine what that would be at this
0: point. Greed, politics, the fight for resources. What will it take for Land Back to overcome those types of systemic challenges?
5: I think we've, we have a, a considerable amount of pressure that's appearing due to the greed and to the extensive damage that's been done to the environment around us. And that alone is creating and an actually generating quite a bit of support for this initiative because it offers uh, uh, a different way of looking at the environment around us and a more considerate uh, uh, treatment of the world that we live in. That's the helping part. The resistance is always government wants to farm out these lands to these developers and in order to get more tax dollars and whatnot, it's just about money and money flow. The reality is, is, is that for Aboriginal people, as I mentioned before, a good part of the territories in Canada are unseated. And unfortunately, you know, the promises that were made in the Royal Proclamation that any third parties would be removed by their government has not happened. As a matter of fact, what happens is if those entities get a chance to place themselves on our territories, on our unceded territories, they get first, um, their interests are valued above and beyond the Aboriginal values in the negotiations. So as a result of that, we do not want these third parties getting a toehold on the land because their interests are become more i guess have more value than ours even though they haven't bought the land. So those issues are coming to the forefront and you know as aboriginal people win more cases, the more recent one actually pushed our land ownership and rights up up another level. So that it's not just an interest that remains in the land, but that we actually hold title, which means that we can kick off the third parties. But um, and in quite a few areas of Canada, we are doing that. But at the same time, the government uh, doesn't proceed with its promises or you know continue to uh, move these things along in, our, in a reasonable way. So I think I think the government will have to do a major shift in its political positioning and start to realize that we are sovereigns too, and that we have sovereign rights to our territory just just as powerful and as meaningful as their sovereign rights.
0: Dr. Moneyguns, thank you for that really detailed overview. Let's hear another perspective of the land back movement. Kwaastenuchten. Is a Kwakwaka'wakw chef, an award-winning writer, and Indigenous foods educator. He's from the Kwakwaka'wakw tribe. Welcome to the show.
4: Hey, each way, OSM. I'm real happy to be here.
0: Great to have you have you on the show and, and taking time out of your busy day there on Vancouver Island. Tell us, how does the land back movement relate to food?
4: Well. I think the elders would have me probably say that without our land, we don't have food, and without our food, we're not who we are. Um, the, uh, the example I'll use is that even when I was young, there were many hehehe he- he salmon within the hehehe. He- 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 River still and I'm not that old yet but we don't have the like volume we once had all of our like foods from you know the earth and uh, um, the ocean are actually becoming less and less and less as they're actually being replaced with our new western food so um what was once a a camas, uh, um meadow is now where they a, a, a grow wheat and so um our uh traditional food fu- hu- 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 system is being um uh, changed over into this new like western like system which really uh works to hu- 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 dis- uh, uh um connect us from the land
0: yeah well, that's a really insightful overview there. And, and with regard to how these food sources have been impacted by outsiders, you mentioned the salmon and, and other resources in your area there in the Pacific North, you know, Western Canada, far Western Canada, how are you seeing uh, tribal nations take back land or, or take control uh, of these lands that are, are being impacted and these food sources that are being impacted as well?
4: Um i've watched a lot of our tribes work to remove um things that are beginning to hurt the environment like the uh um the open uh, 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 uh net uh, uh, um fish uh, 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 um, farms were uh um directly changing the habitat and the he, 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 health of our her, her, or salmon and so they all um a lot of the tribes were actually like working to have them (laughs) removed and as of i think next year they will all be removed so we we are winning a little bit there but the reality is here that that's just the tip of the traditional food (laughs) um, (laughs) um iceberg and that we we really need to to uh to help the world here realize how valuable uh, our our, our, our foods are as an example um, a lot of the traditionally used uh, 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 um, foods here are not even commercially accessible they're being um, uh, changed over so one thing that i'm actually working with here is trying to get our for traditional foods to be recognized within, you know, like the uh, the Western uh, uh, food system. So as an example, we can uh, buy two varieties of of uh, 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 clams here. But uh, the two varieties are not actually from here and are pretty highly he- 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 <laughs> invasive. So the ones, the the varieties that we've had here for like generations are actually being removed to be changed over to these like new varieties. But why are we not just using what was here? Why are we having to like change things? And so it's it, like it's really almost a the change in the way that we use our foods, because we have the resources, we just have to want to use them, I guess.
0: Kostein, you shared your efforts to have traditional foods recognized by, by mainstream people and mainstream cultures, and I'm interested in learning more about your work. And what else are you doing as a chef and as a Native foods advocate to support the Land Back movement?
4: Um, One of the largest ones is that um, I am working with uh, the Ministry of uh, 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 um, Health and the First Nations uh, Health Authority to get our traditional foods Recognized now, what does that mean? Like, so as an example, I work here at um, like an elders uh, 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 um, building, and so I have the uh, I have a requirement to hand the elders the food that like they want, and due to regulations, I can't hand them a lot of our. Uh, 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 uh. Traditional foods because they're not commercially <laughs> um, um, accessible, and so working with those organizations to try to change that. And what that'll really do is um, create the economic opportunities, which can then like drive the different like tribes to return to those ways. Like if we. We return to working on our foods. That the, there's no advantage. Yes, we we can harvest and use it within our her, 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 you know our our homes. You know, but we can't leave the reserve with any of these foods. And so it really changes the uh, the value. We, you know, like we have to like walk in this world. We have to live. In the like Western world as well as this world, so if we want to be able to use those like foods in any real way, we need to have um, um, the opportunities that that the rest of the Western world has with all of like their foods, and so and so if we had those opportunities, we could use that to revitalize like we we've got um shellfish. or or, or
0: seafood uh,
4: uh, um, gardens that were used here for generations and generations and generations that are no longer used because they're not land that is legally the property of the tribe anymore and the tribe is not uh, working as hard to have that land uh, uh, returned because the value isn't as high as it was in in uh, uh, yesteryear, yet if we could use those like foods within um, the Western world, the uh, um, the value would be so high that they would have no choice um, but to like work in, in um, uh, um, you know, like those avenues. Yeah.
0: Okay. And it- we heard uh, Dr. Manyguns talking about returning stewardship of these lands and and you share an interesting challenge here in that some of these lands tribes might not necessarily be interested in because they might not be as valuable as other lands, but from your perspective as a chef as a native foods advocate you see the big picture you see that these lands might be rich in resources that others might be overlooking and and you're thinking about how those lands how stewardship can be recovered for those lands to promote these issues that you have with, with Native foods and supporting those. So what, what would it take and, and, and what are our, our resources or, or what kinds of things would help you and others that are working in this space to promote Native foods and also aligning with the land back movement to, to get stewardship, to reclaim stewardship of some of these lands where where you see valuable resources, but others might not.
3: I think just,
4: the education, the, like, realization that uh, uh, we live here on the West Coast, but we eat the foods from Europe. Like, why is it that a, a, a chicken is actually he, 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 cheaper than one uh 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 um, salmon. Why why would that happen when we never had the he 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 chickens here. Why are they cheaper? It's because we have uh, 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 um, decided to invest in this like Western system as opposed to, you know, like trying to invest within the system that we have here. And so you know, like the education of that, like, uh, um, how many Aboriginal restaurants, you know, like, do you see yet? Yeah, there's all of these other restaurants, but we're not actually like represented, or or even that um, we can. So I I refuse to do the red seal exam, even though I have actually worked as a. <laughs> <laughs> He sat for over like 20 years because in order to do this exam, I have to do it with uh, 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 um, European foods. And so you know, I'm I'm like using um, you know you know this opportunity you know just to, um, you know you know to raise awareness.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have to go to break. I'm sorry, but we're having a, a really enlightening conversation on the land back movement. If you've got a question, one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. Back right after break.
3: The Institute of American Indian Arts presents the Virtual Holiday Marketplace now through the new year. A variety of items from the IAIA community are now available for purchase at iaia.edu marketplace who support this show. Support by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Providing no charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at
0: 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. This is Native America Calling. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We're focusing on Canada's indigenous land back movement today. Still time to join our discussion. How do you define land back? How do you see land back initiatives taking effect in your native territory? The number to join is 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Kwaisteinukhin, a indigenous chef out on Vancouver Island and I'd, I'd like to ask you one more question before we move on to another guest, the elders that you feed every day, do they appreciate all of your efforts to promote native foods and, and the land back movement?
4: Oh yeah um when i was like new here it was a little hard because they had to realize we wouldn't be using all of our like foods and so over these years i have had the opportunity to like change that to try to hand them a lot of our like foods that we were not allowed you know with all this like work with the uh the uh, regional or all health authorities you know like you know like you know be able to get that access so yes they are very happy with that for sure
0: well, that's wonderful to hear and hope you folks all have a great lunch coming up in a few hours uh, out there on the West Coast. And let's hear more uh, about how food and food sovereignty relates to land back. Joining us now from Treaty 8 Territory is Tiffany Traverse. She's an indigenous land and seed steward at Fourth Sister Farm. She is Sequepmic. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Oh, White. Cat. Thanks for
6: having me
0: absolutely tiffany and, and and tell us more where does food sovereignty fit into the land back movement
6: um i think it's actually right at the center of it like right up there with language um you know like food is something we all need to survive and without um we as people aren't healthy so they're they're very much um together
0: well, tell us more about Four Sister Farm and its involvement in the land back movement.
6: Yeah, definitely. So Four Sister Farm was sort of the um, birth from me um, as a sort of a, a nod to the Three Sisters uh, planting methodology with corn, beans, and squash working in harmony together to create this you know, perfect ecosystem for each of them to thrive. And I think of myself as that Four Sister being the land steward to help guide um, plants as they grow. Um, it's also a nod to my, my great grandmother, Elda Sheeler Palmer Kimbasket Hart. She was the fourth sister of seven sisters, all residential school survivors. Um, and it just seemed like such a fitting, uh, name to, to bestow upon the farm where we're doing some really amazing work around indigenous plant breeding, um, working with the federal government on some indigenous led, um, soil health projects that are actually going to inform community and um, yeah, and, and doing some seed adaptation to our changing climate. That's kind of the center of the work that I do there.
0: Well, the plant breeding, that sounds really interesting. Indigenous plants. Tell us more about that.
6: Yeah, definitely. Um, like when I talk about plant breeding, like really, I, I, I do give it that qualifier of indigenous plant breeding, but when we think about plant breeding, uh, really, like we as Indigenous people are the ones that did that. I mean, we look at the uh, a corn crop, for example, which came from Teosinte, and and if we as Indigenous people hadn't selected and carried these um, corn seeds over the years and cared for them as they cared for us and helped feed us, um, corn would actually revert back to Teosinte. So corn itself would not survive without um, our Indigenous uh, stewardship of those seeds. So yeah really any type of plant breeding um whether it's selecting for drought tolerance uh, frost resistance, pest and disease resistance, um, really is the work that we've been doing as we carry our seed bundles around with us with us from you know time immemorial.
0: So this conversation, we keep going back to this whole concept of, of stewardship of these native lands and are there any specific uh, land projects or, or land back issues that the, the Four Sister Farm is currently addressing that, that fall within this mission of, of promoting these, these healthy foods, these indigenous foods, these programs that you have going on up there at the farm?
6: Yeah, um, really. Uh, I really wanted the farm to be a place of learning and teaching and mentorship, and I have the great privilege of having access to land, and so I really feel that it was um, my my service as an Indigenous person, as a Sequetma woman, to help others, you know, actualize their own ancestral foodways and. Provide access not only to land to grow. I, you know, I do bring people out to the farm to learn, um, but also to help steward um, other nations and other communities seeds for them and return them. And that's uh, part of a growing movement of the rematriation of seed uh, to to their people, like back to their people, so that they can feed them as they once always did. Um, it's it's very beautiful. I do a little bit of work as well, um, helping advocate for Indigenous protected conservation areas, as well as um, helping to do some work around treaty land sharing networks, which are starting to pop up over over many
0: of the different provinces now. Tiffany, I know you feel strongly that education must be tied in closely with action. Tell us more about that.
6: Yeah, uh, for me, you know, I, I don't have any of my own human children. Most of my children are, are dogs or seeds. And uh, I think it's so important to be able to pass this knowledge on to, to someone. And because I don't have my own children, I really feel that education, um, specifically to the youth, but, I mean, even to some people who are older than me that really want to reconnect with their ancestral food ways, Indigenous or not um, I Uh, Again, I'm providing a a service. I've I've had such a great privilege of learning from amazing mentors like my mentor, Caroline Chartrand, who is uh, Métis, uh, Rowan White, who is Mohawk from Akwesasne. You know, these are some of my dearest and sweetest mentors that have taught me over the years. And I really feel that it's my, um, you know, my responsibility to be able to pass that knowledge on to um, others who are willing to take that knowledge and do right by it and not commodify it the way that obviously capitalism and the industrial agricultural complex has forced us to do. So, yeah, I really feel education is just right at the at the center of, of
0: what needs to be done. Well, let's talk more about your own education and your training. <laughs> How did you become a seed keeper? it's so
6: funny everybody asks me that and uh, it's funny to say you know I have no formal education um you know I went to college back in 2003 for an admin program I don't have any botany or or ethnobotany background um I really just got back to the land after being away from it for so long living uh, um you know in in an urban setting and it I mean it just it it came to me and you know as I started learning and really diving into not only my sequetmo but my swiss roots and you know, seeing what what we used to eat, and really wanting to have that feeling again for myself, and um, I started doing some really deep soul searching and research on, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what like what types of foods do we eat, and are we still eating these foods, and why aren't we eating them if that's the case? Um, and it really just, I you know, fell headfirst down this rabbit hole of, of learning everything I possibly could, and learning different ways to collect and grow these plants um, so that I could pass that knowledge on. I know a lot of it's becoming lost. Um, and I really want to to make sure that others are able to, uh, to learn that as well.
0: Listeners, there is still time to get in on our conversation. 1-800-996-2848. Tiffany, Dr. Many Guns mentioned, uh, political challenges, greed, and, and infighting over resources and things like that. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing Land Back, the movement there in Canada with regard to your work there at Fourth Sister Farm and and being a seed keeper and, and working on behalf of food sovereignty issues?
6: Yeah, I mean, I have to thoroughly agree with Dr. Menegans. um It's very multifaceted, very layered. Um, the definition of Land Back can mean Several different things, you know. As I mentioned before, there's there's alternatives to um, simply having land given back to Indigenous communities. Although, obviously, that's the the end goal. Um, you know, we're looking at different different ways to 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 get into that land back. Whether it's land sharing agreements, um, you know, Indigenous protected conservation areas, so that you know we're not actually taking crown land and putting it into a park, we're actually um, creating this space where um, each of the nations can can practice their hunting and gathering and foraging, fishing rights, um, which I think is really important, because we're not uh, all agriculturalists either. I mean, there's no such such thing as pan-indigeneity anywhere in the world, and to say that we're all either one or the other is definitely doing a disservice to um, just how complex our, our systems are. So I think we have to look at um, many of those different things, and of course, greed is always at the center of um, what is holding um, us back as Indigenous peoples in reclaiming um, these rights to place and, and land, and really to food, which is the um, the pillar of uh, really of our health and our overall.
0: And from your side of the struggle. What more do you need to address these challenges? Resources, uh, awareness, what's it going to take?
6: Well, I always laugh. I say, you know, if I could clone myself five times, that would be great. Yeah, there's there's so much <laughs> work that needs to be done. I think capacity is, is definitely um, a huge barrier for myself. I actually
0: work off for a level, uh,
6: too. Uh, and so you actually need to see Which was towards planting of disturbed areas, disturbed by industry. So, you know, we are doing the work on the land, whether it's at home, you know, growing food for our families and our communities, but we are actually doing a lot of work out in the communities as well. So,
0: well, let's go back to Dr. Manny Guns and Dr. Manyguns, you know, as you know, a lot of our listeners of Native America calling are down here in the U.S. and and I'd like to ask you, what can Native people down here in the states, what can we learn from Indigenous peoples in Canada about the land back movement? Because as we've talked about, we are facing similar struggles.
5: I, you know, education. You know, I I certainly agree with everything that's been said. I, I find it just fascinating and so um, encouraging to know that people are learning, going back and learning. And I think that part of this learning also means regaining the knowledge of our original trade routes and starting to trade from, you know, uh, indigenous groups to indigenous groups and starting to uh, access and learn again how to process our own the natural foods that are in our environments, like bulrushes, um, you can harvest those in the fall, and you can get flour out of the heads. Uh, you can harvest them in the in the spring, and you can get the little buds that are, you know, really tasty. And just knowing that these innocuous things that are growing on the sides of the roads actually are foods that. <laughs> we used to survive on and and they tasted really good. I I as I mentioned before we have we're growing some of the mandan seeds here on at the university we planted them the first time this year and I had uh I had taken one of the recipes from Buffalo Birdwoman who was documented in the early 19, 1917 I believe and uh, all of her seeds were taken, so I found them. But I also cooked one of her recipes, and it was four vegetables mixed. It just was sunflowers toasted and crushed and uh, a slurry of, of the squash, and then beans and corn all mixed, added to it. And I'll tell you right now, when I made it, I had a bunch of profs and students over at the house, and they were literally eating it out of the pot. It was so good. No salt, no pepper, no nothing, just the natural processes. So we have a lot to offer when we go back and, and we engage and figure out what these wonderful, wonderful um, food sources were that sustained and actually created just a wonderful quality of life.
0: That existed. Well, Doctor, many guns. Before the show, you, you shared with me that that you have a background as a chef, so you've kind of got a, a secret weapon over there as uh, with your work in indigenization and decolonization. It sounds like you cook up a, a really great dinner. So that's wonderful for <laughs> for your students and, and associates as well. I want to go back to Tiffany and Tiffany. Let's look to the future. Um, where do you see? Land back Canada in the next ten or fifteen years. Tiffany, are you there, Doctor Manyguns? Could you answer that question? Looking forward, where do you oh. see the movement headed?
5: You know what? I see this as a, a very, very interesting and very kind of soft-edged way of getting to know getting to know the Aboriginal people. And the way that we lived prior to contact, and it's also uh, people. People love trying different things, and I think it's a it's a way to regain respect for our cultures, and um, diffuse these notions that we've lived in these mundane, boring, you know, uh, less exciting environments. But I'll tell you, when they taste our food, they love it.
0: <laughs> well unfortunately that's all the time we have for our show today and I want to say thank you to all of our guests in this wonderful discussion on land back Canada it's been really enlightening really informative and it's also gotten me really hungry listening to all these great chefs talking about food and food issues and how they relate to land back join us tomorrow as we begin our look through the decades The series remembers the politics, major events, and pop culture of the past that were important to Native Americans. We start off with the 1960s. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Smithsonian's National
3: Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu.
6: First baby, don't know where to start? CMS program coverage prenatal service. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian healthcare provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.